reading from Psalm 73. Hear now the Word of God. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment, their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, as people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them, and they say, How does God know? And there is knowledge in the Most High. Behold, these are the ungodly, who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes. So, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father God, truly it is our desire to enter into your sanctuary that we might, Father, view this world with heavenly eyes. That, that truly, Father, our only desire would be for you. And we would pray, Father, this morning that you would help us to declare your mighty works both to the world and to those who have called upon your name. Help us, Father, to be good stewards. Help us, Father, to be wise. Help us, Father, to 
to proclaim those things you would have heard by the ears of men, that we might not falsely not only put our faith in the riches of this world, but in the thinking of this world. Help us, Father, to have the mind of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, I want to finish up um, one last thought of my last uh, talk, which is uh, I put the, uh, I entitled, you know, the extra biblical. It's uh, from the established starting place part two, and then I'm going to talk about a relationship with God. And this one, just one last point I want to make, because it's a little closer, I think, to home, Uh, because we have to realize that you have kind of just the hardcore charismatic who are talking the word of God left and right. Then you have people who are kind of softcore charismatics who are just kind of doing that, but they're not, you know, allowing it to have too much power. But you have that kind of thinking that still kind of we got to deal with and this kind of, you know, know, that God is speaking to me intuitively and what have you. And I think we just got to be careful uh, of that. And so I want to talk about briefly about things that we see in our own confession, um, called the light of nature or the necessary consequence. I'm not going to talk a lot about that. Um, In chapter 1, paragraph 6 of the Confession, we see that it gives warrant to things called the light of nature, necessary consequence. And unfortunately, I think we have to recognize that oftentimes the unclear definition of these things can lead to error. Peter, in his writings, comments on Paul's writings. He says, in which things are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of Scripture. And I just, I guess I just want to put a caution out there that how one uh, distinguishes the light of nature from the darkness of the human heart is something I think needs to be investigated. And we must be careful not to divine the light of nature as something that supplants the word of God. I think we also have to be careful to make sure that the necessary consequence of the scriptures is actually necessary and not merely convenient. And although people may not utilize a loose definition of these things to become theologically derailed, they certainly can if they choose and uh, I'm not going to talk more about that uh, than that, you know, what I've just said. I just view those two things often coming up. And I think we have to be really careful because light of nature and necessary consequence are pretty undefined terms. And I had somebody ask me one time on my view of the law of God, and, uh, you know, they were talking about the light of nature in such a way as to somehow supplant the law of God. To which I cleverly answered, what if the light of nature told me that the law of God is what we should obey? I mean, if you, how can you argue against that? I'm using your view and my view together. <laughs> the light of nature has led me to believe. Anyways, I don't want to be overly clever about that, but I think we need to be careful with those things and make sure that light of nature does not supplant the word of God and that necessary consequence is actually necessary and not just something that is convenient to the way I want to uh, view the scriptures. All right, uh, talk number six, a relationship with God. Perhaps you've seen uh, the bumper sticker, 
I'm a big bumper sticker person, huge. I wrote a column in the Daily Breeze on bumper stickers, and I want to read them. I've probably almost gotten into accidents trying to read the whole bumper sticker, pulling up. And then when I read somebody's bumper sticker, I like to drive up next to them and profile them. What kind of person has this bumper sticker? And some people on their bumper, their whole world view is on their bumper, right? They got, you know, the Darwin, and then they got the, uh, you know, the, the, the pro-choice. And it's all there. It all really, their world view and their politics is all there on their bumper, you know. But uh, one, I think, popular bumper sticker is, and actually is popular just in terms of thinking and evangelicalism, is I'm not religious, I have a relationship with Jesus. I'm not religious. I have a relationship with Jesus or a relationship with God. Very popular slogan. And what I'd like to explain in this session is what I have found to be sacrosanct in today's evangelical community. What are, what are in reality, today's means of grace? To where do modern evangelicals look for assurance? And what is viewed as the initial contact point, if you will, with God? First, the beginning. We have in modern evangelicalism what has really become the primary modern sacrament, and that is the sinner's prayer. There is no bigger sacrament in Western Christianity than the sinner's prayer. This is viewed as the initial contact point with God, and I think it's important for us to address this initial contact point and its attending theology, which is often an Arminian gospel presentation because it informs oftentimes the rest of the theology of our evangelical friends. Your, your soteriology, I, I would argue, informs the rest of your theology. If you, if you have a poor understanding of soteriology, you go, you're going off in the wrong direction everywhere. And I had mentioned earlier that we have found that the central purpose of all modern crusades, the Harvest Crusade, Billy Graham Crusades, you name it, you know, and all these other guys who, uh, you know, want to get us involved in their movements, is the sinner's prayer. People, in fact, will determine whether or not other people are Christians, not based upon baptism, not based upon whether or not they're a member in good standing of a Christian church, but based upon whether or not they prayed the sinner's prayer even if their life gives little or no indication of genuine regeneration or faith. If they walked forward at that crusade, that gives other people assurance that they are in fact saved. And of course, the fact that oftentimes people walk away breeds kind of an Arminian, lose-your-salvation kind of theology. They're just going, well, they did get saved and no longer saved. It's all based upon kind of a human observation of what took place. I think it may be healthy to lovingly point out that there is not a single passage in the Bible which justifies this action, which is the central action of all of modern Western evangelicalism. I think that's, to me, and I mentioned that earlier, a man came in my office and said, where is that? And I couldn't find it. And I think that is a, that's an eye-opener for people. Evangelism. <clears throat> And I think that's something, you know, like I mentioned earlier, that we as a denomination maybe can think about, you know, our, you know, how we would evangelize. But I think evangelism, in a certain sense, involves the interaction of a spiritually thriving Christian community where certain things take place. 
I found the following passage to be a good passage to bring people to for evangelism in bringing the message. It's Acts 2.42-47, through 47, and I realize this is a unique historical event, and, and we often bring, the, you know, the earlier portions of this uh, are kind of, is a passage used often in a lot of churches, the breaking of bread and fellowship and prayer and what have you. But take a look at what's taking place here in this early, if you will, covenant community where the gospel has been preached kind of to the first time for these people who are believing in Acts 2.42-47. through 47. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what we have here is a community, if you will, the covenant community of God. And I recognize there were signs and wonders. There was a uniqueness to this. But nonetheless, the word is being preached. There's the breaking of bread. There's the fellowship. There's the prayer. And then people are looking at this community. And God is somehow similar to what we see in the Exodus, right? They were finding favor in their eyes. God... God was granting them the ability to find this as a good thing, and God was adding to that number daily those who were being saved. I guess I would have to argue that a modern-day application of this is for people to come into the Christian covenant community of the church and see what's taking place, see, hear, hear the preaching of the Word, see the sacraments taking place, see the love that people have one for another, see the families, hear the victory of Christ proclaimed, hear the, the songs of victory sung and the songs of praise and glory sung. And then by the grace of God, having seen that, we trust that God will bring it to, to the point where they find it's, it's found favorably in their eyes by the grace of God, and they seek to become part of that community as well. And that seems to me to be the way a lot of sound church growth takes place, where you invite your neighbor, they come to church, and they see the covenant community. And God opens their eyes takes their heart of stone, turns it into a heart of flesh, and they say, this is my home. This is where I belong. And God adds to that, adds to that community. Bring people to church. That is such an um, archaic thing. I was just talking to a couple of guys who have Campus Crusade experiences, and uh, you know, it's, it's more go out and share the gospel. And I'm certainly not one to dismiss the need to share the gospel. But I think what, we, what people don't want to hear today, as a matter of fact, I uh, wrote a letter. I went to a Christian men's breakfast, and there was a guy speaking who's a popular radio host, and um, he shared the gospel. It was a Christian businessman's thing, and you're supposed to bring your friend, right? And he shared the gospel. And part of the gospel presentation, and, and, and I remember doing this myself, was, you know, you don't need this, you don't need that, you don't need works, you don't need this, you don't need church, you just need Jesus, and I, and I thought to myself, isn't that interesting that he added church to the things that are, you know, uh, kind of an impediment to people coming to Christ, rather than the church being the means of grace whereby which people come to Christ. And I wrote him a letter, and I go, you know what, and I mentioned a couple of verses, you know, the church for which, you know, for which the blood of Christ was shed. And I go, you know, if I were you, I'd avoid, you know, taking 
putting the church in the crosshairs of things that are unnecessary when you present the gospel. And I wrote, you know, and he actually gave me a very positive response, and he wrote back, and he said, thank you. And he says he's going to remove that from his thing. You know, and I, whether he did or not, I don't know, because I haven't really listened to him since. But there really is this sense, in terms of uh, our relationship with God, in terms of what, the way the modern evangelical views his relationship with God, where the church is really expendable. I was raised on the beach, and that's where I grew up. And I can't tell you how many of my friends are like, hey, man, my church is my guitar and the cove. That's my church. And it's such a bedraggled old thing. And I was playing in the six-man surf festival this last year, and I ran into a guy, this old volleyball guy, who played volleyball up in Santa Barbara. And, you know, we're all, you know, it's, we're playing now in the 50 and over category, you know. But it's the same rhetoric. It's like, it's just, the tournament's Saturday, Sunday, and I don't play Sunday tournaments. And they're like, are you going to be able to be here tomorrow? I go, no, I can't. You know, I've got to go to church. And, you know, and Dave's like, well, you know what? This place is my church. I'm like, really? Who, who serves communion here? <laughs> Tournament director going to be serving communion? You know, I mean, it's come on. You know, come on, Dave. This, this, this language still living from 1966, you know? But I'll tell you something. Let me just tell you something. When I started going through the Westminster Confession, this one that I'm going to read, it's chapter 25, paragraph 2, was shocking to me. Just shocking to me. And it reads like this. The visible church is also Catholic or universal under the gospel. That is, it is not confined to one nation as previously under the Mosaic Law. It consists of everyone in the world who professes the true religion together with their children. This is the part... um, that really got me. The visible church is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and the house of the fam- and family of God outside of which people cannot ordinarily be saved. I looked at that and I read that. I remember reading that going, that is so against everything that I've been taught. That the, the, the means by which the person is actually brought into relationship with God is through the church the preaching of the gospel in the church, the people that God has ordained and raised up to preach the message, to preach it accurately, to preach it with accountability, where the person is sitting there and hearing it. That's the, now, it says ordinarily, so we recognize that there are exceptions. And of course, unfortunately, in our culture, the exception has become the rule. And since that's been the case, I don't think anybody's going to argue that we have watched kind of a demise of the saltiness of the Christian faith in the last 50 to 100 years in our country. Interestingly enough, it's that same period of time that the parachurch organizations came to power and the whole idea of the church becoming really dispensable. But, and even the gospel still, you know, there's like the gospel's important, you know, and even though the gospel itself is a gospel that was cre- is created by, you know, uh, businessmen. who, for, You know, I remember being part of a parachurch organization the whole theology of the organization was developed by a businessman who owned a business, and it was kind of a network marketing organization. And not only that, he would, they would show us how to present the gospel the same way, if any of you have ever been in sales, are told to present your, your product. You ever, anybody, you know, I don't, you know, sales, I'm sure there are a lot of people in sales, but you know how it works, right? You get your flip chart. You hand it in front of the person. You get the pencil, and you go, and you, and you walk them through it. And then you bring them down to the end of the sales presentation, right? And what do you ask? You don't ask, uh, do you want this? You ask, do you want the $60 one or the $100 one? Right? 
You know, the, the, the fact that you don't want one isn't really an option. Well, this particular little, you know, program was the same way. They taught us how to hold the little booklet, have a pencil. We had to memorize it. I probably can still recite it by heart. So they're reading. I'm pointing at it with the pencil. We get down to the very end, and then there's two little circles. There's one circle with, you know, discord and craziness, and your life is falling apart, you know. And the other one is harmony, and, you know. It's like, which circle best represents your life? You know, is there, and the cross is in one, and the cross is not in the other circle. Well, the one without the cross. Which one would you like to have represent your life? Well, the one with the cross in there looks better to me. So you're, you're leading them down this whole path. And, it's, and it's, uh, it's basic sales principles. And somewhere in the back, it's, you know, there's like, and it'd be a good idea to find a church. But it's all one-on-one, you know, and they have people who do this who've just become Christians within months presenting the gospel. But the idea of going, you know what, I remember having to take a deep breath and go, you know what, you really need to invite your friends to come to church. And we're not going to change church for them, by the way, which is something that happens in the modern uh, church, you know, mega church movement, right, where the church service is seeker-centered, you know. What what does the Bible say? I remember R.C. Sproul saying, you know, no one seeks after God. So, you know, how can you have a seeker-centered church? What are you going to do? So it's not a, you don't change that. You know, what you do is you go, this is the community. This is the covenant community. This is what happens here. You bring the person in, the unregenerate person, and, you know, if in fact they are the elect, they're going to look at this and their eyes are going to be open to recognize that this is my home. This is where I belong. And so you want that presentation. You want what's going on. A church service, by its very nature, should be evangelistic. The pastor should be preaching the gospel. I mean, uh, the sacraments, if they're not evangelistic, I don't know what they are. I don't know, what, you know what's more valuable, more powerful than, than seeing these things take place and hearing a proper explanation. The word and the sacrament, I think, are, is amazingly evangelistic. And I think also, I think I'm going to mention this in a, later, that the church needs to hear the gospel, and that's, uh, that's another point. But I think this, to me, was shocking that the church is the ordinary means by which people come to faith. The relationship with God begins. In today's culture, friends, it is not viewed that way. The church is viewed as a good idea, but it's certainly optional. And church membership is almost non-existent, especially in the megachurch movement. Now that brings me to my second point here in terms of the uh, relationship with God. And I think this second point is a very, very important issue to bring up with our evangelical friends. And that is, what is our purpose in our relationship with God? What, you know, we have this relationship. What's, what's its purpose? This was a big enough issue for the divines to place it first, right? In the catechism questions. Number one, why do Christians go to church. I mean, I mean you can ask, why do, why do Christians do anything? But millions of people, professing Christians, wake up every Sunday morning, get dressed, load the kids up, and go to church. Why is this? Why do we do this? Now, again, I did a radio show on this. So, you, you know, because I know I had a Christian audience, why do you go to church? And I got all the answers. You know what? Not one of the answers was answer number one of the catechism question. What's your reason for going to church? Why do you go? I got, the, I got answers. Most of them were good answers, noble answers, nice th- answers. Right? Well, I go to grow spiritually. 
I go to fellowship with other believers. I go because I want to learn more about God. I go because I've wanted to, you know, my life's been disheveled and wanton and I went to church. I go to church to clean up my otherwise disheveled life. I go because I want to know the peace of God. I go because I want to change the kind of people I hang out with. I want to make new friends. I want to have better people that I hang out with. I mean, none of those are really bad answers. But why do Christians go to church? I think that's a really good question to ask your friend. What, what is the purpose of your relationship with God, especially with this purpose-driven life coming out? You know, it's funny. The very first line in that book is a really good line. It's not about you. But then the rest of the book, it's all about them. He doesn't really keep that theme going consistently throughout the book. There is a preponderance of scriptural testimony regarding why Christians, and quite frankly, people in general, are to do anything. The primary reason man is to do anything relates to his relationship with God. And I think it's valuable to get our Christian friends to understand their primary reason for living, their primary reason for the relationship they have with God. And it has been the uniform testimony of the greatest theologians throughout history, through their interpretation of Scripture, that man's primary purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Most people aren't going to get that answer. I know for us, it's, you know, it's Christianity 101. Let me tell you, that's an amazingly important conversation to have with your Christian friends. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I've listed a number of passages. By the way, let me just point something out here um, that I do, and I think it's important, important to do, I, I think. When you're quoting the, a conf- the confession, I even do this when I'm preaching to my own church. Um, I always quote the confession, and I always proof text it. I, I always biblically proof text it. I, I say, you know, it's in our confession, and I would argue, and I'll say something like, and I would argue that it's biblical. Because I think that the divines of Westminster would turn in their graves if they thought that we were using the confession as our final authority. I think that uh, there's a strength in understanding the confession, but at the same time, I think there's a weakness in not understanding the biblical proof text for the assertions in the confession. So make sure, I think, we just got to make sure that we can make... You know, the, the confession is a succinct statement, but you've got to make, you've gotta make the argument biblically, especially if you're talking to your evangelical friends, because they're not going to have a lot of respect for your confessional statement unless you say, but it's, you know what, I think it's biblical. And this one, it's not too hard to find biblical argumentation that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Just a couple, I, you know, I've got a whole couple of pages here. And you know what, I think I'll read a little bit of it, because it's the Word of God. And, uh, you know, sometimes I get tired of listening to myself, and I enjoy just reading the Word of God. And I'm going to let you in on it. First Peter 4.11 If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jew or the Greek or to the church of God. Philippians 1.9-11 And this I pray 
that your love may abound still more and more in the knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve all things, things that are excellent, that you may know that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by, by, by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Philippians 2, 10 and 11. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 1 Peter 5, 10 and 11. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Romans 16:27. To God alone, wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Ephesians 3:20 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, Above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 1.17 Now to the King eternal, immortal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Jude 25 To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. And enjoying God, just a couple of verses I have. Psalm 116.7 Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Psalm 16.11 You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 34.8 Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, many of these are familiar. We use them in our benedictions. Uh, and let us not think that it's just kind of a parting comment. It's almost as if the, the apostle or uh, Jesus, uh, Peter, the ones who write it are going, look at it. Let me just remind you what it's all about. It's all about the glory of God. And I think that we need to make that point to our evangelical friends. That the reason they go to church, the reason they live, is to bring glory to God. I mean, you can even make the argument that God, the chief end of God is to bring glory to himself. And if we don't, if we don't have that you know, paradigm in terms of our thinking, a lot of the other theology is not going to make sense. We've got to recognize, um, I mean, it was an eye-opener again to me, and I'm always telling you about my eye-openers just because you probably, maybe you always, always believed it and you never thought this was an eye-opener because you, know, you always believed correctly, but... When I came to realize that the, um, you know, you talk about, you know, why is there sin in the world? You know, why, you know, that's the big atheist question, right? You know, if there's a good God, why is there evil, right? That's the debate. And uh, even Christians kind of uh, will take their understanding of the sovereignty of God and so truncate it as to somehow have evil be working on its own, separated from the decrees of God. But you explain to your friends that if the chief purpose of all existence is the glory of God, and then you get them to shake their head, finally, okay, that's, that's the case. Then you say, well, what, was the, what is the most glorious thing about God? If you were to look at the course of history, what is the most glorious thing that God ever did? You know, I mean, we could argue a little bit about that, but it's hard, you're hard-pressed to find something more glorious than the cross, right? Isn't that, 
Isn't the cross of Christ, the Lamb upon the throne, isn't that what we're going to be praising God for forever and ever and ever and ever? We'll never come to the end of praising God for the Lamb upon the throne, for the Lamb that was slain. There's never going to come a time in eternity where we're going to say, I get it. All right? Let's go to the next chapter. You never come to the end of praising God for the cross of Christ. But what had to happen in order for there to be a cross of Christ? There had to be a fall of man. Right? Which we have to recognize is that if I believe that the chief end of all of all of creation, of all things, is the glory of God. And if the most glorious thing that God ever did was send His Son to the cross, that would necessitate that God created a world where this take place. That only works, by the way, if you believe that the chief end of all things is the glory of God. It doesn't work if you think that the chief end of all things is the happiness of man. It makes all the sense in the world that if God is going to go, you know what, my goal here before, before creation, my goal is to glorify myself. And I'm going to glorify myself by demonstrating my love, my grace, my mercy, my sacrifice. I'm going, to, I'm going to demonstrate my love by sacrificing my own son on the cross. I'm going to demonstrate a love for that which is unlovable. It necessitated a fall. And so, in fact, the fall not only makes sense, but it becomes, a necess- it becomes necessary, but it only works if we believe that the chief end of all things is the glory of God. Now, that is kind of a hard pill for your evangelical friends to swallow. I mean, the unbeliever can't swallow it at all. But I would have to argue that that's biblical Christianity. And that is, that is, that is, a, that is a reasonable explanation for the world that we observe, even if you don't like it. People come in, I don't, you know, can you explain to me why they're suffering? I, went to, I was doing my pub, you know, one night, and some guy raised his hand and he says, can you explain to me why there are suffering children? Why, are, why, why is that? You know, if there's a good guy. And I gave the explanation I just gave. I go, look, and you may not like the explanation, but do you want a reasonable explanation? Yes. I, I, do you want what I think is the only reasonable explanation? Yeah. And I explain what I just explained to you. And he goes, you know, it does make sense. You're right, I don't really like it, but it does make sense. But you know what? It's something for him to wrestle with because it only makes sense if you recognize that your chief end is to glorify God and quite frankly, you look at I mean, look at the Exodus, right? What does God say time after time? That I might demonstrate my power. That I might demonstrate myself. That I might be glorified. I mean, if God wasn't a God, he'd be the ultimate egoist, right? But the fact is, he deserves that. That is the most glorious thing. That, to me, is a big hump to get over in terms of your conversations with your evangelical friends. If you can't get past that, it's really going to be hard to get past a lot of other things. It's a matter of recognizing that the chief end of man is to glorify God. I, um, you know, I didn't get married until I was late in my 30s. And um, I was, uh, and I was almost through trying, you know. And, um, and I was a pastor of a church, and I was like the only single guy in the church. And so, uh, you, know, I, you know, and I kind of had a policy that I'm not, you know, I'm not going to date people in my own church, you know. Of course, they were all married, so I wasn't going to date them anyway. And, um, and as time went on, people, you know, the church grew and people came. And, uh, you know, my wife-to-be started attending the church. But if, if you've noticed my wife, you've probably noticed that she's a lot younger than I am. 
and I live by the maxim, there's no fool like an old fool. So the last thing in the world I was going to do was ask her out. As a matter of fact, um, I went to the movies one day and uh, with my, my a relative of mine who's 10 years older than I am, we went and paid for our tickets. We walked away. He had $10 in his hand and I had $12 in my hand. And I thought, how come, you're, how come I got $12? And we looked at our tickets, and they gave me the senior discount. <laughs> okay, now, I'm not through. I'm not done. So I come home, and my wife says, I went to the store, and I, I bought that wine you wanted, and I got carded. <laughs> boom, boom. Well, as you know, if you get married when you're older, you're a lot pickier, you know. You know, you get set in your ways and all this stuff, and you, you know, you, you can make decisions a lot quicker. And I had another theme. For those of you who are single, uh, my theme was I'd rather want what I don't have than have what I don't want. I had done enough marriage counseling, even as a single man, to realize, you know what, unhappy single people are unhappy, but unhappy married people are miserable. <laughs> And so, I mean, I kind of had that in my head, you know. And so, uh, you know, we, one day our church was going on a little nature hike, nature walk, and a couple in our church said, oh, you want to drive with us? And I said, sure, I'll drive with you. And Jen's in the car there. And they, to this day, they say they weren't trying to set us up. And we drive, you know, we're driving, we go on the nature walk. And I actually was talking to her about other men in the church she might want to go out with, you know. And, uh, you know, she wasn't interested. And then she described what kind of man she was looking for and described almost me to a T, Although to this day she says she wasn't really didn't really mean to do that. Time went on, and uh, and I you know we went with the four of us hung out you know and we never I was always ner- I was like I wasn't going to pursue this relationship I was just I'm here and I enjoy hanging out but I'm not going to you know have the talk you know and so she, she took it upon herself you know and said look at she you know we're on the phone and she says look at obviously there's an attraction so if I she says I date to be married so if you don't have any intentions. Just let me know now and don't waste my time. <laughs> Anybody ever watch The Honeymooners, right? <laughs> hum, na, hum, na, hum, na, hum, na, hum, na, hum. <laughs> she says to, that, to this day, it's the only time that she ever has recalled me being absolutely speechless. So we started courting, you know, dating and stuff. But then the reason I'm bringing this up is that you know how it is when you're dating and you're so excited and you're on the phone until 3 o'clock in the morning and you wake up at 7 and you're fine. And, you know, it's just such an exciting period of time and you're doing all this stuff. And, um, you know, it's fun. And it's, it's, but she, she has a conversation with me. She said, uh, you know, she goes, I just want to explain something to you. She goes, I don't feel as a result of our relationship, I'm really growing spiritually. And she goes, if I don't see that change, I don't see much of a future for us. I'm like, wow, man, this chick is hardcore. <laughs> but I, you know what? That was the night I decided that I wanted to marry her. Because I thought to myself, I want to be married to somebody who's more accountable to God than to me. I want somebody who recognizes that her, her, she knows what her chief purpose is. She knows what her chief end is. She knows where she wants to go. And as much as marriage is an important thing, if your marriage partner becomes your chief end, that marriage is heading for icebergs. I want somebody to love me because God tells them they have to. (laughs) 
I want somebody to love me the way Christ loves them. I don't want them to love me because I'm doing so great. You know? And I, want to, and, and I have a responsibility to love my wife because of the way God loves me, not because of the way my wife is loving me and so on. My point here is that there's got, there's got to be this understanding of what our chief purpose is in order for things to work. You know what? Our evangelical friends, they'll understand that. They'll get that. You have to help them understand that your chief reason for existing is to bring glory to God. And when that first thing is first, everything else becomes what it's supposed to be. My kids muse at the idea. It's, you know, my kids, you've seen them around, they're little. They're fascinated, because I love my kids so much, you know. And they, they're fascinated at the idea that I'm called to love God more than I love them. You know, Junior will come up, he goes, do you love God more than you love me? You know, he'll want it, he'll want, he's just fascinated with that concept because there's such love we have, you know. And I give the truthful yet some eva- somewhat evasive answer. Junior, the reason I love you so much is because of God's love for me and my love for him. Hmm. <laughs> you see, it's not a matter of the one, it's not a matter of the person that gets shortchanged because God becomes, you know, the most important thing. My love for you is greater because my love for God is greater than my love for you. Does that make sense? My, greater love, my love for you is greater than it would be if my love for God was great. Well, you know what I'm saying. I don't have it written down, but you understand. It's not a matter of, of the person who's glorifying God and everybody else gets ripped off. Right? When we come to recognize that the chief of a man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, that's the person you want to be married to. That's the person who you want as a neighbor. That's what we want to have in the world. People who recognize that their chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is, you know, I mean, I, you know, I have more of a post-millennial outlook, you know, and I, don't, I realize that we're not going to live in utopia, you know. But to me, that's where we want to go. That's where the world wants to go, where everybody in the world has heard the word of God. The righteousness of God has covered the earth as the water covered the sea. And everybody comes to recognize that the reason they exist is to bring glory to God. And to enjoy God. That's, the, that's who we want. That's where we want to go. That's the message I think we have to bring to our evangelical friends. So what does it mean to glorify and enjoy God? Let me just finish up here. Unfortunately, there aren't five simple steps to glorifying God in 15 minutes or less. You know, we live in such you know, an automated microwave theology society, right? I want to be able, I want to be, what I want to be the godly person and give me the eight basic steps for this. I think the family instructional guide states it pretty well though. Quote, when inwardly they have the highest estimation of him, the greatest confidence in him, and the strongest affections to him, this is glorifying God in spirit. Glorify God in your spirit, which is God's. 1 Corinthians 6.20 To enjoy God is to acquiesce or rest in God as the chief good with complacency and delight. Return unto thy rest, O my soul. So I think to glorify and enjoy God means that we have the loftiest estimations of God. We seek to see and appreciate His perfection, His purity, His immensity, His power, wisdom, holiness, counsel, righteous will, glory, love, grace, mercy, patience, Abundant goodness, truth, justice, etc. That we just look at this and we just go, God is an amazing God. And we, and we seek all our lives to plumb the depths of the attributes of God 
and the way that God has presented himself to us. It is in God and his attributes that we have our uttermost confidence and it is toward him that we are to devote our strongest affections and allegiance. It is when Christians are immersed in these things that we have our greatest joy and we begin to grasp in whose hands our soul rests. Friends, I think it is difficult for me to think of any doctrine more important yet more undermined in our culture than the sovereignty of God and the exercise of his sovereignty over all of things for his own glory. That is just an unaccepted view of God, that God is sovereign and he exercises his sovereignty to bring glory to himself. I I can't think of anything more biblical, more important, yet more undermined in the culture in which we live. To miss this, I think, is to miss everything. One need merely look at the explanations for 9-11 by today's prominent theologians to see the truncated views of the sovereignty of God and convoluted views of why events actually occur. It is only through a reformed understanding of Scripture that the true comfort can be found. To come to recognize that God has ordained whatsoever comes to pass for his own glory and that he will not apologize for a single day in history was an epiphany for me. It must be emphasized that God has his own just, holy, and glorious reasons for even the most disastrous events. When we are given true, untainted, heavenly eyes, we will praise God for the darkest moment in history, which is also the most glorious moment in history, which I would have to argue was the cross of Christ. Let us pray. Father God, we do pray that you would help us. Help us to understand how you would have us think about this world in which we live. That we might have right thoughts toward God. That we might have right thoughts, Father, toward your Son. That your Holy Spirit would enlighten us. Help us to understand the Scriptures. Help us to understand the way you have presented yourself to us. And Father, help us to bring that message to our friends that you, Father, first and foremost might be glorified and that, Father, all of Christendom might enjoy you and enjoy the good things that you have done. Through Christ we pray. Amen.